from a personal perspective, I like to always, with these things, be imagining a 100% renewable energy grid. Australia's got some of the best wind resources on Earth. We could certainly do a lot more biogas, anaerobic digestion of organic matter to produce gases that we can burn in gas turbines. So I think there's a lot of novel things that are being proposed, which I think Australia's just in the absolutely best position to capitalise on. Australia has perhaps more than most countries around the world the biggest untapped potential when it comes to renewable energy. And as you heard Tom Morris from the University of Technology Sydney say, we have massive opportunities with renewable energy sources such as wind and the sun, which seems to hit us just right. Also now, renewable energy is cheaper and carries that green footprint that we should all be striving for. But still, even in 2018, there's a pushback, there's inaction, and a reticence to fully engage in the space that is renewable energy. But why? According to Tom, there's a number of reasons. It does a lot of damage when you have a Prime Minister that is famously a climate sceptic. Even when he recants on that position, he'll come out and make public statements like, well solar's great, but what happens when the sun goes down, or wind's great, but what happens when the wind's not blowing? As if that's the end of the story. As if there's literally nothing we can do, and all the lights will go out, and our fridge will turn off, and our beer will get warm. All these kind of things, it's just, I think that sticks in people's heads. This regurgitated retort of the finite and unreliable nature of renewable energy sources, for many does stick. But what a lot of people don't know is that we aren't solely dependent on the wind to blow or the sun to shine. Accessing these sources isn't what harnessing the full potential of renewables is all about. They're just one cog in the machine. Where the real opportunity for renewable energy lies is in our ability to store this energy, store it in systems where it can lay in waiting to be accessed should we need it, when we need it. Today on the show, with so many opportunities to store renewable energy, will the federal government ever change their mantra and stop blaming the sun and wind for their energy problems? You're listening to Think Sustainability. My name is Jake Morecambe. For the past decade or so, battery storage has seen a significant uptake and has sucked up a lot of the hype here. But there's a new wave of energy storage technology that not only has widespread potential across the country, but utilises another natural resource, water. And this technology is something called... Pumped hydro. Now, pumped hydro is not to be confused with the process of generating hydroelectricity, also known as hydropower which is... Where you've dammed up a river, so you've always got that water source um, behind that dam, and then you're capturing the electricity as it falls. That's known as renewable energy because it's not burning a fossil fuel. But that doesn't mean hydropower doesn't have its downsides. Displaced people. There was a study that was done, I think, by the UN, which suggested that between 40 and 80 million people have been displaced by the flooding of areas from the building of dams and for hydropower. Across the globe. 
across the globe. So if you've got a river, the water's continually flowing through. Now, if you put a big wall in front of it, where's the water going to go? And it's going to back up and it's going to keep going and keep rising. And as it rises, it spreads out over the landscape. So um, it floods an area. So pumped hydro adopts some of the same principles as conventional hydropower. It's using water, for one, but also uses the same idea of water travelling between two points. For hydropower, you're relying on a running water source, sometimes the run of the river or a dam. That water runs or drops down and funnels through turbines which spin it around and around to generate electricity. The difference with pumped hydro, though, is there's no dam, so no damage to the environment, and actually no need for any sort of water reservoir. Pumped hydro storage can just use tanks. It can be a closed-loop thing and it can be far away from a river. Your basic setup looks like two tanks, one up a hill, one down the bottom. Tom says the standard is about 300 metres in height separation. Between those two tanks, you have a bunch of pipelines, and in that setup is where you have your water. How does the water initially get in there? How do you put it in there? You could uh, let rain fill up the tanks. You could pump the water out of the water grid. You could truck it in. It doesn't have to fill immediately. You could just trickle it in over many days or weeks. Now, unlike a battery that stores the energy into a fixed unit, the storage potential of pumped hydro isn't necessarily the technology itself, but rather the gravitational potential energy of that water sitting on top of a hill. The best way to think about this is the idea of electricity supply and demand. In a pumped hydro system, at all times, you have your water. During periods of low demand, say a cool breezy day, the turbines in the pumped hydro system will slowly push that water up the hill so that during a day of high demand, like a scorching Thursday afternoon where everyone dashes home to switch on their air cons, that water will be released back down the pipes, rushing through those same turbines, which turn and turn to produce electricity. That's the storage potential. The concept behind pumped hydro isn't anything new. Some of the earliest examples date back to the late 19th century. But the reason it's gathered so much recent attention is due to the fact that renewables are inserting themselves more and more into the electricity market. Last year alone, 40% of all net new generation capacity in the world was from solar photovoltaics, otherwise known as PV. 20% was wind. And the remaining 40% came from coal, oil, nuclear, gas, hydro, and all the other renewables put together. Which, to Andrew Blakers, Professor of Engineering at the Australian National University, proves that PV and wind have comprehensively won the race for the next electricity generation system around the world. They're both variable, wind and PV. They need storage and pumped hydro, batteries and demand management are the only shows in town to provide that storage. Andrew was part of a research project and survey that identified more than 22,000 potential sites for pumped hydro storage to be installed around the country. 
And this is about a thousand times more than we actually need to support a 100% renewable electricity grid. And um, just a couple of dozen of them out of these 22,000 possible sites scattered from North Queensland right through to Tasmania and across to Western Australia is enough storage to balance 100% renewable electricity in Australia. And although pump storage makes up 97% of all storage worldwide, there are only three pumped hydro installations around Australia. And they are Wyvernhoe near Brisbane and Kangaroo Valley in the Shoalhaven River in New South Wales and the Tumut 3 power station in the Snow Mountains. So to match our growing energy demand under a renewable system... Andrew says we need to start building these storage systems soon, as they take between two to four years to get up and running. Tom Morris from UTS was involved in a similar research project, estimating exactly how much storage was needed under a renewable energy system. OK, so I've got, I've got some straight-out numbers here, so... Renewable percentage of generation is 75% in our high renewable energy 2030 scenario. So 75% of all the generation in Australia. We found that to provide enough energy to meet our demands all throughout the year, we needed roughly 10 gigawatts of installed capacity. Gigawatts means the total output in one instant. And that's around 105 gigawatt hours. And then gigawatt hours is the amount of time in which electricity is pushed out. So what this means is, realistically, for energy adequacy, meaning the bottom line, we have to increase our energy storage capacity by nearly four times than what we have right now. But complete foolproofing, no shortfalls, the research project Tom was involved in found. For entire system security, we estimated, and we were very conservative with our numbers around 35 gigawatts. So, look, for those high renewable energy scenarios, we do need to absolutely increase our storage. The strength in pumped hydro is that because Australia has an interconnected electricity grid, if there's a lack of wind or sun in one area the energy stored in another place can help account for that shortfall. The likelihood of nothing generating electricity is extremely low. You don't need your energy storage to provide enough power to power the entire grid at any one time. But there might be a shortfall, sure. So, say, out near Goulburn, there might not be much wind going on at that time. But the solar might still be pumping, or there might be high winds up up in the northern rivers or wherever. So we've got generators that we can draw on from up in Queensland and down in South Australia. It's just making up these shortfalls. Also, the gigawatt-hour potential of pumped hydro means not only can it amp up quickly, but it can push energy out for long periods of time. Now, I'm not saying that that storage mix that we're going to have is just going to be pumped hydro, but it can do a lot of the heavy lifting. So it can ramp up... Uh, in around 30 to 60 seconds. So we have a drop in energy generation somewhere, a big jump in demand. We need some discharge in a very, very quick time frame. So that can be provided by some of our batteries and demand response. But then pump storage can discharge for many, many hours. Some plants can discharge for 20 hours. 
the federal government has started to take notice of the potential of pumped hydro and has even announced plans for its expansion across Australia. But unfortunately, to many, these announcements aren't exactly a step in the right direction. You'll find out why next. You're listening to Think Sustainability. My name is Jake Morecambe. In March of last year, Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull announced the federal government were backing a feasibility study towards something called Snowy Hydro 2.0. An expansion of the Snowy Hydro scheme, one of the largest hydroelectricity complexes in the world in the New South Wales Snowy Mountains, is looking to add two additional gigawatts to our national pumped hydro storage capacity. The exact setup, Andrew Blakers from ANU explains. Is a 27-kilometre long tunnel connecting two existing reservoirs within Kosciuszko National Park. So the tunnel is underground, the power station is underground, the rock that's excavated to make the tunnel is dumped into uh, Talbingo Reservoir, which is an artificial reservoir at the bottom, So that would have a week's worth of water running at 2,000 megawatts of power, which is quite a large amount of storage. Which would double their storage to nearly 4 gigawatts. Tumut 3, the existing pumped hydro storage station in Snowy Hydro, is 1.8 gigawatts. And what this means is that this expansion could be used to support 50% renewable electricity in the Australian grid. But should we want to go beyond that? achieving higher targets like 75 or even 100% renewables. According to Andrew... You need to have about two dozen additional pumped hydro storage systems with the support of batteries and some demand management, and you want to spread those out so that you're not vulnerable to bad weather or a landslide or something in a particular area. You want to spread them out just for redundancy and safety. The fact that even after spending $2 billion on the construction of Snowy Hydro 2.0 would still require even more pumped hydro storage setups anyway has seen some political pushback when it comes to the expansion itself. The most pithy comments are Snowy 2.0 can support 50% renewable electricity in Australia. You wouldn't bother building it unless you are planning to push renewable electricity up to 50%. The federal government's renewable energy target is currently pushing for at least 33,000 gigawatt hours of Australia's electricity to come from renewable energy sources by 2022. That equals to having about 23% renewables on the market. So why bother building a pumped hydro storage setup that holds double that? The idea behind Snowy Hydro 2.0 isn't necessarily a bad one, but investing in a technology that has nearly doubled in cost from what was originally posed, Tom Morris from the University of Technology Sydney says... Yeah, and these things always blow out in cost. There's nothing stopping that cost from rising even more. I would imagine it would be quite expensive because you've got a lot of existing infrastructure there you have to build around... It's quite an ambitious project in what they're trying to achieve, what they're installing, what they're moving about. So if we've got, it's $2 billion and it's going to provide 2 gigawatts 
my criticism of it would be we should be spending that money on increasing our renewable proportions right now because storage is in a great demand at this very time. And I don't think that the rising cost of electricity is that we don't have enough energy storage in our grid. So from my perspective, money could be better spent at the moment. However, it seems Snowy Hydro 2.0 is where a lot of the money continues to go. Back in March of this year, the federal government announced a $6 billion buyout of both New South Wales and Victoria's shares in Snowy Hydro Limited, with about $4 billion going to New South Wales and $2 billion for Victoria. These buyouts would see the federal government move from 13% ownership of Snowy Hydro to a full 100%. But if it's not economic and not particularly useful until we bump up the rate of renewables on the electricity market, why are we pushing for Snowy Hydro 2.0 at all? I just kind of want to know why Turnbull is beating a dead horse. What's with this obsession with Snowy Hydro 2.0? I suspect it's a couple of things. Um, it's mostly a distraction, I think. This is Giles Parkinson, editor of reneweconomy.com.au. It's interesting with Snowy 2.0, it makes a lot of sense if you were going to accelerate the transition to renewable energy, because then something like Snowy 2.0 has a role, has a place, it kind of makes sense. And and that was kind of the first take I had of it with uh, when Malcolm first um, unveiled it or first started talking about it. But then as it became clear that he wasn't going to do any such thing and he merely wanted uh, Snowy 2.0, almost as yet another block to renewable energy. And without a faster transition to renewables, all you're going to be doing with Snowy 2.0 is using coal to pump water uphill and probably ending up with higher wholesale prices rather than cheaper prices. It just makes no sense. So I'm not really too sure whether it's a Trojan horse going into um, the renewable energy market or it's a Trojan horse going into the right wing of his own party. Um, I guess that remains to be seen. One, if this thing is actually built anyway, because we haven't had yet a convincing argument, either engineering-wise, environmental-wise, or financially, whether this is a goer, and two, what he does after that. Let's say it gets approved at the end of this year. Does he then use that as an excuse to accelerate renewable energy, or does he simply leave it there as a blocker for any new projects to come? Because that'll be the outcome. If Snowy 2.0 is built and there's no more ambitious target towards renewables or emissions reduction, then um, all it's going to do is crowd out other investment. I also spoke to Andrew Blakers about this story because he was involved in a research project that identified like 22,000 pumped hydro storage or potential sites that could be implemented around the country. If we were kind of really looking toward investing in the technology in that eventual transition to 100% renewable energy, do you think he'd focus his attention there instead? Well, you would think so. Um, There's no real reason, financial or engineering, wise to actually argue against a transition to 100% renewables, um, far from it. And, you know, they almost sort of try to present it as though Snowy 2.0 is the only um, solution. Well, it's not. It's kind of like a, it's almost like an overbuild in one central location. And goodness me, they're even talking about a Snowy 3.0 and a Snowy 4.0. And it's just all in one location. We'll need an extraordinary amount of transmission infrastructure to sort of deliver, you know, the benefits of an asset to around the country. 
you know, a lot of people think that the way we're going in the future is more distributed energy. So we're going to have a solar farm here, a wind farm there, a lot of solar and battery storage behind the meter, which is to say in households and businesses. And maybe we need pumped hydro and other storage options around the country rather than just sort of going back to this sort of centralised view of the world, which just relies on these massive, massive generators and a whole bunch of um, transmission infrastructure because we've kind of learnt from all of that, you know, by gold-plating the networks. That, that accounts for half our bills and is one of the reasons why we're paying ridiculously high prices for our electricity. Frydenberg was saying it would never be privatised. What do you make of that? Well, I'm not too sure why he's saying that. It's interesting that the Liberal Party would be saying such a thing. Um, you know, at the same time, he also comes up and says, we're free market and, um, and don't want to interfere into the market yet you know here's <laughs> a government that's actually sort of buying this um, snowy hydro outright and let's not forget that snowy hydro is a considerable business it's um, got the fourth highest retail numbers in the country it already owns significant assets the pumped hydro and the normal hydro schemes in the snowy mountain scheme and elsewhere plus a whole bunch of gas generation it also is trying to force AGL, a private operator, into keeping Liddell open. So this idea about not intervening in the market is just, you know, more just nonsense, really. Now, the, the privatisation issue is really an interesting one. It's interesting because of what that generator does once it goes into government ownership. And we've seen in the last two years how the private owners of generators have really bid the price of electricity up in the wholesale markets really, really high. So they've kind of seen what the networks have done and gotten away with over the last five to 10 years. And now they're kind of into the market and trying to make money as well. We know from their results that cost of generation hasn't risen at all maybe a little bit for gas, but their profits that they're making by bidding up higher prices have absolutely soared. They've risen threefold. So they're basically gouging the market. Now, the only place that is not happening is in Queensland. Well, it was happening, but it stopped. And the interesting thing is in Queensland is that those generators are government owned and the government actually saw what they were doing, saw that this was politically unacceptable and instructed its own state-owned generators to bid the price down and not to go price gouging on the market. Now, that meant lower returns for the state government, but it also meant it kept the electricity prices low in the state of Queensland. And then you've got another place like uh, South Australia, which is also a place where you don't have many competitors. And if you talk to that government, they wish that was state-owned because they could deliver a similar sort of instruction. Right now, you just have a market which is dominated by one player, AGL, between AGL and other two players, Onji and Orange and Energy, they basically account for 80% of the market. So they're basically free to charge and do what they want. And that's one of the key reasons why South Australia has really high wholesale prices and why there is a big effort now to get more competition in the market. And the way you get competition in the market is by having not just wind and solar, but also wind and solar paired with storage of some kind, so battery storage or pumped hydro or this new solar thermal plant. And that'll bring a new competitor to the market and hopefully will presumably bring prices down. And we've already seen that actually with the Tesla big battery. That's a privately owned one, which plays in something called the FCAS market, which provides grid security. That was a market which is small, but was gained outrageously by the operators because they could. But since the Tesla big battery has been operating, those prices have come down substantially, like by about 80%. So it's already had an impact and shows how increased competition from renewables can actually lower prices rather than push them up. Do you think Snowy Hydro 2.0 has been pitted against battery storage? 
Look, I think so. I mean, um, well, I mean, I just don't think so. It actually says so in their document. It says that um, snowy hydro is built, then that would result in less battery storage being built around the network. So that goes back to the point I made at the start that Snowy 2.0, because it is so big, actually crowds out other investment. And that goes back then to the issue of competition. If you've got this big thing there, you need less storage around the network. And and they themselves have actually kind of been pitching it as it's us or battery storage and trying to pretend that battery storage was really expensive. But there's actually two different markets. Battery storage is really good, fast response, short time period storage and can be scattered around the network and can be modular. It can be one megawatt, could be 10 megawatts, could be 100 megawatts. Pump storage tends to be bigger, slightly slower responding, but can provide more energy, if you like. So, you know, for longer periods. So there'll be a role for both of them. And I was really quite dismayed when Snowy was trying to pitch it as a either or, because I just don't think that's right. And I'd go back right to my first point is that if there's not more renewables in the network, then all Snowy is going to do is get coal-fired generation at low price times and then sell it at higher price times. So it's simply going to recycle coal and get a higher price for it. You mentioned Snowy 3.0 and 4.0. What is being discussed there? I had not even heard of that yet. No, it's extraordinary, isn't it? Um, look, they're not very specific about it, but they just think that they can go bigger and better with uh, more pumped hydro and um, using more of the dams up there. So they haven't really told us what that means, but what they are suggesting is that if 2.0 is a goer, then they're looking to do 3.0 and 4.0. So I presume it means you know, significant amounts of pumped hydro storage. Once again, the environmental and engineering questions come in. But what it really tells us is that this is a player in the market that really wants to sort of dominate the market. And and I think this is a cause for concern for consumers because we don't want to see small numbers of really big utilities dominate the market. And, and that's exactly what they want to do. I mean, it's probably true to say that for Snowy, this is a do or die thing because if they see that more renewables go in and there's more distributed storage, then there's probably less of a role for something like Snowy 2.0 to go ahead because it is such a huge cost for one single asset their time to be built is probably now or never. The question is, should we be worried? Because if it's not going to be built, then lots of other things will be built and might make more financial sense. And I guess if it isn't, it's also a potential legacy project down the toilet for Malcolm. Well, look, he needs to be remembered for something. And um, at the moment, um, all he's being remembered for is a lot of frustration. This is the man who crossed the floor, remember, um, against the uh, scrapping of the carbon price. He did often say that he would never lead a party that did not take climate change seriously. And here he is as Prime Minister, the head of a coalition government, which is not taking climate change seriously. It has no policy for emissions reduction. It is actually seeking to reduce or even reverse the course of emissions in the electricity sector at the moment. Its modelling suggests that it will bring a halt to new large-scale wind and solar plants and the only thing that he's really excited about is keeping the Liddell coal-fired generator open and building Snowy 2.0, which once again makes no sense whatsoever unless there's a whole bunch more renewables into the system. That's it for Think Sustainability. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe. All you have to do is look for Think Sustainability on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We also have a website, 2SER.com forward slash Think Sustainability. This show is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio, 
the University of Technology Sydney and is heard around Australia via the Community Radio Network. Theme music by Joe Koning. I'm Jake Morecambe. Thanks for your company.